0: If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. And welcome back to the
1: Business of Healthcare podcast. In this episode, I am interviewing Chima Alahu. Chima is an award-winning pharmacist, primary care commissioning manager, author, speaker, and community leader, and is very modest as well. (laughs) So, in this interview, we talk about the importance of relationships, and I, I really try to dig a little bit deeper when Chima says we need to build good relationships. It's like, what does a good relationship look like? And how do you do that? How do you practically do that? We talk about how Chima is working alongside his colleagues to help increase their cultural competency. We also talk about the importance of not quitting, even when it's really hard. I think Chima said, when the road gets bumpy, invest in a stronger seatbelt. So we talk about that. And Chima gives us a little bit of insight into an award that he's most proud of. He's won quite a few awards, um, but the award he's most proud of is the award awarded to him by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society for Public Health Pharmacists of the Year. And in 2019, he was voted one of the most outstanding Nigerian healthcare professionals in the UK. He's just like an all around nice guy, super chill, super humble super modest, like too modest. It's like, come on, come on now. <laughs> you, you're you a little bit of a big deal. Um, but it was lovely interviewing him and I hope that you enjoy it. Hi Chima, thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Nice to meet up again, Tara.
1: Yeah, cool. So, I came across you, I can't remember what I was looking for, I was looking for a black influential leader in healthcare, and on LinkedIn, you came up like superstar, award-winning pharmacist, so I was like, I need to know more about this person, so we had a lovely, (laughs) lovely chat. You did. Uh, I've ordered your book, I am not, I'm probably (laughs) a couple of chapters in. That's fine. Um. But yeah, I just thought you've got such a fantastic background. Um, you're in primary care commissioning, you're a pharmacist based in London. And I just, I want to hear everybody on this podcast to hear hear your story and hear how amazing you are. So could you give our listeners a little bit of an introduction, please?
2: Okay, so my name is um, Shima Olugu. I currently work for... What was Lewisham CCG but a couple of months ago, the, the CCG merged with a few other CCGs in South London. So I now work for what we call the South East London CCG. And CCG stands for Clinical Commissioning Group. And for probably in layman's terms, I like to refer to the CCG as a local NHS. So we commission services f- um, from GPs and pharmacists to make sure that they look after the health of our patients. So I, I, obviously I work for the CTG as a primary care commissioner. I'm also a, a community pharmacist, so every now and again I do um, work in my local pharmacy, seeing patients and dispensing medication and giving medis, medication reviews and things like that.
1: Um, you're also an author, you're also a speaker, you're also a, like a community leader.
2: I'm trying to get used to um, that one, yes. I'm an author, I published my first book uh, about five months ago i um, also probably a community leader is best word. Um, I do a lot of um, community work, normally in my spare time. I uh, work with a lot of um, community organisations, mainly Nigerian organisations. I also work quite closely with the Nigerian High Commission here in the UK, so developing and supporting policies to support Nigerians who, are, who live here in the UK.
1: How did you get involved with the High Commission?
2: Um, A very long story, but probably 2005, if I remember correctly, just after the July bombings here in London, the Nigerian High Commissioner at the time wanted to find out if any Nigerians had been affected, and it was an onerous exercise to try and get our heads around that exercise, and eventually realised that there was no sort of single body to go to to get all this information. So the gov- the um, High Commission after that decided to set up an organisation that looked after the welfare of all Nigerians here in the UK. Uh, the organisation still in existence It's called the Central Association of Nigerians here in the UK. So when it was set up, I was privy to work closely with some of the executive at the time, and have recently served or worked with the organization as the first vice chairman so again the main remit for the organization is the welfare of nigerians here in the uk and we sort of risk sort of the intel box for the high commission so if the high commission needs any sort of soft intelligence on nigerians here in the uk um they come through us we also support a lot of cases of nigerians either who are Um, being scheduled for deportation, people have immigration issues, housing issues, um, so that we obviously work in collaboration with the High Commission. So that's how I got to start working with the High Commission.
1: Do you feel like you're making a positive difference?
2: Yes. As you might know, there's quite a, a good number of Nigerians here, so probably in the grand scheme of things, it's very difficult to see. However, when we do touch someone's lives or when we do help somebody who's in a difficult situation just to see the joy on the face of that individual, the families of that individual, it's good enough. And also the fact that Nigerians do have somewhere they can go to if there is an issue, whether it's resolved or not is a different case. But there is now a sort of central point or direct point that all Nigerians in the UK can go to. And there are there are bases all across the country. So the organisation obviously is for the UK, not just London. So it is, I believe that it, the organisation makes a difference. And also if individuals coming directly to me, if I'm able to help them out directly with my contacts or my knowledge or my information. For me, I feel a difference is being made.
1: So for our listeners that may not understand the world of CCGs and commissioning, what does a primary care commissioning manager do
2: okay so probably to make it easier for our listeners so primary care when we when we refer we refer to primary care as gp practices and pharmacists mainly also dentists they work in primary care and optometrists that's primary care and then what we refer to as secondary care is what you call your hospitals so m- most of my work is obviously with gps and pharmacists commissioning is the buying of services so as a CCG, my role or as a primary care commission, my role is to buy services from mainly GPs to look after the health care of people living, for example, in Lewisham. So all their, all their health care needs need to be catered for. So my an example is we buy uh, diabetes services from our GPs to make sure that anyone who has diabetes is well looked after, make sure they get the right care. If they need to be referred to a specialist, then they get the right referral to their local hospital or their hospital of choice. And as part of that role, obviously, when we buy we buy services from um, GP practices, the fact that we're using taxpayers' money, we have to monitor them quite rigorously to make sure that we're getting um best value for money, so that involves a lot of uh, monitoring, monitoring what time our, our GP practices are doing, if they're delivering the right service, are they delivering the right outcomes, and are obviously our patient outcomes being improved, so there's a lot of monitoring um, involved as part of my role. And also, as things have moved on in the NHS, apart from just monitoring, which sounds some, harsh sometimes, my role does involve supporting practices if practices have innovative ideas of how to change things so if a service isn't working for example instead of monitoring the service just for the reason that it's there if there are ideas how that service can be delivered differently and get better outcomes then obviously I'm welcome to listen and um, try and tweak things or deliver you know check on board what has been said and deliver the service in a whole
1: different way. As when you are a pharmacist are you delivering the service that you have commissioned?
2: So when I work as a pharmacist, which is not every day, but yes, I do deliver some of the services that I have commissioned. Yes, so that's, obviously I'm wearing two hats. I find I find that to be a great advantage because when I go, to, so if for example, if I worked on a Saturday in my local pharmacy, when I go into the office on Monday, I have having worked on a Saturday, I tend to f- see what some of the issues are. So a Monday to Friday job as a primary care commissioner, sitting at my desk and doing, you know, the normal day job. When issues come to my desk or our desk, should I say, sometimes quite difficult to understand the real issues if you're not there. So obviously when I work in a pharmacy and see some of these, I I obviously get a better understanding. And when I go in on a Monday, I can kind of feed that back to the powers, you know, that that be. So it's it's it's. I think it well. It's an advantage anyway having those two hats.
1: Do your colleagues think that is an advantage?
2: Yes, I do. <laughs> they do. I'm Why like are a, laughing? A, because they, <laughs> I give them the inside information of what's happening on on so on the on the cold face, if that makes sense. Yeah.
1: And when you say when you talk about monitoring. Do you think there is the right level of monitoring regarding these contracts? Like, is it too much, too little? or Is it just right?
2: So, it, it varies, I, to, to be honest. To answer, it's very difficult to answer that question specifically. Each um, organisation will have sort of uh, an approach to monitoring where I work and definitely in primary care commissioning. We have a more light touch approach. It's probably the right answer. Um, as I said earlier monitoring yes we have to monitor because we're using taxpayers money however if something isn't working so if over a period of a year uh, most practices report back to us on a quarterly basis so if after two quarters and a service is just obviously not doing well and I see that it's not just one practice that is doing well not performing well and it's a you know maybe a certain percentage rather than just continue to monitor and beat them over the head with a stick I'd want to speak to the practices and find out why the service isn't working and get feedback and as I said earlier if there's tweaks that need to be made or if it's just the wrong thing to be monitoring then I need to know that so that's that's how I operate anyway it's more sort of innovative supportive and transformational monitoring I would say Generally, as you would know, NHS they're quite good at at, at monitoring. And as I said, every organisation has their level of monitoring. For me in Lewisham, I think we've got a we've got the balance right.
1: So, what so you talked about being innovative and and speaking to the practices? What makes a good commissioning manager?
2: Most important thing is relationships. Having a having a great relationship with um, the providers that's what I call them generally, is quite key and also trust. Um, there, in the past, there, there has been this you you and them kind of feel. So um, you or me being the commissioner who gives them the money and them being the people that need to deliver the service. And in the past, it seems to have been this barrier put up or level of distrust put up. For, for me, I tend to take my time, build relationships, earn trust, work with them, show them that, as I mentioned earlier, if things are not working, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with getting ideas and I'll take it back to the ranch, as I like to say, and we'll see if we can come up with a, come up with a different way of doing this. So I think it's quite key to build good relationships and earn trust.
1: We've got a few camps that listen to the podcast. We've got experienced executives and then we've got people that are looking to progress their careers. It's how do you develop the relationship? If you are a commissioning manager and you you say that you're in front of your, you sat at your desk nine to five, how do you develop those relationships? And how do you not make sure, but really facilitate when practices have got an issue? And I'm sure that there'll be lots of issues. How do you iron those issues out? An executive will be listening, think, well, I know how to do that, but if you want to progress your career, and we always talk about you need to develop relationships. We need to develop relationships, but it is the how. How can you make people trust you? You wear two hats. I asked you if it was an advantage because I'm assuming that not everybody will think that is an advantage. Your CCG colleagues may think that's an advantage. Your pharmacist colleagues may not do. Uh, they may. So it's the how that that's what I'm interested in so
2: in terms of career progression i mean for, again probably going back to the relationship side of things personally i i'm not a sit at your desk type person per se i do like to um i'll call it attach myself to important meetings um if my director going to a meeting i always ask if i can tag along I find out certain issues that might be of specific interest. So if it, if it isn't necessarily a primary care meeting, if there is a primary care angle, I'll go and do some research, find out what the issues are or what, what one of the issues might be and kind of work through a practical, what might be a practical solution, for example. So when we are at a, say, a, a governing body meeting or primary care commissioning meeting where i then have an opportunity to put forward a solution to something that comes up that's what i'm i'm quite good at another thing that i learned in my former job is actually doing so again rather than just sitting at my desk i can again probably because i have that pharmacy sort of hat on as well i'm not scared to go out to a, G, a practice so i can call up a practice and say Tara, what are you doing this afternoon? Oh, we're going to have a clinical meeting today. Okay, can I join in? Yes, I can. And I'll go in there, sit down, find out what some of the issues are. One of the things, and a good example is um, a quality improvement um, program that I ran with eight practices just you know, last last financial year, so 2019, where we were having issues with patient experience. Patients just felt that. They were finding it very difficult to access services in 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 specific practices. They couldn't they couldn't get through on the phone, for example. I put together um, a, a small project, approached loads of practices, and eventually eight took uh, agreed to pilot this program, which is still ongoing. We're gonna we would have um, evaluated it probably in April or March, but because of the pandemic, it's been pushed forward. I think till October. But again, being able to just get clinicians within the practices eight practices big practices some of them to take up this project and they're working through it and this is outside of their normal day-to-day work so i mean so far it's probably only not probably is the only one project or that type of project that's been taken that's taken place across southeast london we i was asked to present it i think it was in february to the rest of my southeast london primary care colleagues so again Rather than sitting at my desk, I'm quite able to go out there and build relationships, get the trust, explain some of the things that might be done. I've listened to what you have said. So these are some examples of things that I can do to support you. And hopefully the evaluations so far are looking good. And obviously that's sort of a tick, not just for me, but for um, the primary care commissioning team and probably for my boss as well.
1: What do you love about being in the, on the commissioning side?
2: So the reason why I joined the NHS in the first place was I wanted to be on the side that makes decisions as to how the health care of people or patients. I wanted to be a decision maker. I wanted to make sure that I had an input as to how the health and well-being of patients are made. So I, I enjoy that. Happy uh, being a, being, well, if, you, if I wasn't, if I was a normal patient per se, which well, I am a patient, but being a normal patient, you probably don't have much input apart from it. Maybe if your practice does some patient engagement and hopefully that's get, that gets fed back and you, is input in certain projects or programs. But being a commissioner, once um, NHS released their strategy, strategies, we're obviously able to sit down and work out how that strategy now transforms to work on the ground That's the bit I enjoy.
1: And how's COVID affected your role?
2: Immensely. So, again, Primary Care Commission is mainly about GP practices. So, obviously, that's we call it, the cold face. That's where everything has been. So, for example, all all the services that we um, commission from practices, I had to suspend them in February or March or so. So a lot of our, our services, which are, which are priority services for our area, so things like diabetes prevention, cancer prevention, alcohol, and long-term conditions, that we all those services that we commission from our GP practices, they had to be suspended, which is sad, really, because obviously there are patients that need those services. So they've been suspended on a personal level, not being able to go to the office. So that's that's a bit. I'm stuck at home, working from home, but that's obviously um, something new. And also, probably over the last three and a half months, I was charged with leading the PPE, so the um, personal protective equipment gear, for all our practices in Lewisham. So that was quite a huge task, um, especially at the beginning when there was no PPE. So I was um, charged with... Coordinating and in some certain instances sourcing where we get them from, and then working with what we call our GP federation, getting them distributed out to practices, basically on a daily basis. So it's, it impacted me on that way, and also the fact that a lot of the work, daily, the day-to-day work that I would normally do because of the pandemic, that has been paused. So uh, i in in mo- most cases, I've been deployed to do other things, which is fine. It, it gives me an idea to learn. Um, different, different things, different skills.
1: So, I asked you, what does a good commissioning manager look like? And you are very modest because you are award-winning. That is a fact for oh, for lots of things. So, this is your chance to, you know, share what awards have you won and which which award are you most proud of. Um. <laughs> Uh... <laughs> He's like, you can't see him. He's like squirming. He's like, why are That's you good. asking me these
2: questions? <laughs> it, it is a good thing that there's no um, vision. <laughs> to be honest. No, but um, seriously, um, I've always been a person, I, I don't know, I've never been into awards, but over time I have been told that, in most cases, awards are um, sort of recognitions, mainly for, obviously, if you've done something good, you are getting an award. So over over the years, I've received quite a, quite a lot of awards. Back in 2003 or four, when I started working in the NHS, I um, piloted a, a cardiovascular program with um, St. Thomas' Hospital and community pharmacists. And that worked out quite well, which eventually was rolled out nationally. I got an award for that. But I suppose an award that sticks out in my mind is um, the Royal Pharmaceutical Award that I received in 2014. Again, that was for my work in cardiovascular disease. And it was a project that, I mean, why why this why this award sticks out for me is one, it was a project that I didn't get a lot of support to carry out. I didn't really get as much support as I thought I would when, when I raised it with um, my seniors. But I pushed through, I pushed forward with it. Um, and it was it was basically the, what is now known as the National NHS Health Check Programme. So it was my idea, one, to have it delivered not just in GP practices, but in local community pharmacists. Local community pharmacists are open most hours of the day. GP practices are also open long hours, but obviously have a lot of other things to do. So that was my that was one of the reasons for um, going down that route But also I um, encouraged, I think it was Public Health England at the time, to reduce the um, age for the health checks. So the health check is, to qualify, you need to be aged between 40 and 74. Where I was working at the time, the borough I was working at the time, had a high population of Africans and Asian people who I know, and we all know through studies that they're more likely to develop diabetes and other, Um, cardiovascular diseases at a very young age so by the time they're 40 when they qualify for this NHS health health check program they're probably too far gone so I got the age reduced to 35 which was and then again it was piloted across most pharmacies in our borough and powers that be at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society Um, realised that it was a good thing to do and it is now done everywhere I, I was at working in a pharmacy a couple of weeks ago, and the sticker for NHS Health Checks was there in the pharmacy. And the lady asked me, "Do you know how to do these?" And I said, "I don't," but I was the one who started the program. So I got—I I was nominated for awards, and I didn't actually want to go. It was in Birmingham. I just finished a community project, a very big community project with the Nigerian community. It was a family funded thing that had spent months planning. So after that, I just wanted to take a break, and I did get a call. Probably the week after the weekend of the big project asking if I checked my emails that there was something from the Royal Forms Society. I checked my emails and there was an invitation to Birmingham to come to this award. And I do remember telling my wife at the time that I wasn't I wasn't going because being awarded was good enough that you know how there's no way in 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 this world would I ever win it. Considering there I think there were about 814 contestants. So I decided not to go, not knowing that my wife had already bought a ticket and arranged how I would get there, hooked me up with her um, cousin who picked me up from the train station, took me directly to where the awards were taking place. And a lot of things happened. I was quite confused. I I, I was sat on table number two, and a lot of things were playing in my mind. I, Helen Gordon, who's the, who was the... Um, and the chairman, I think, of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society came up and said hello to me. She knew me by, by my first name. So I just thought in my mind, oh, they're just doing all this too. So, so that when I don't get the awards, I won't feel too bad. So was there and when they called my name, because there were other awards, obviously, that they were giving out. I didn't even hear it. I was, I didn't hear just, and the lady sitting next to me nudged me and said, Chima, that's you. And I think for the first time in many years, I was, I had no words. I went up onto the stage. I did square. I didn't, I didn't realize I had a mic. When <laughs> she said, Chima, that's you. I had I, 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 a silly square word came out of my mouth. I went up onto the stage and they asked me if I had anything to say. And I just said, thank you. And I had to go down. I was just like, it was a wow moment. Um, and I mean, for people who do get to read my book that I did have, what should I say? A bad moment with the society, Royal Pharmaceutical Society, at some stage in my life. So then, then, sort of years down the line, recognizing me as somebody of value, that was kind of a, a great time for me, a great moment for me. So that is why that award is probably most dearest to my heart. It's on my top shelf, where no one can touch it apart from me. <laughs> so yeah, it was a wonderful moment.
1: You said towards the start of this interview you wanted to be a decision maker. Yeah. Do you like being recognised as a decision maker and a person of influence? The,
2: the normal me would say no. Because that's how I am, but no, I do. Definitely. I, I think it's a it's a good thing. Um being recognized is good. It's also, it's not just good for the fact that, you know, if you're good at something it's good to be it's good that you're recognized for that fact, but also I think something that some of us tend to forget sometimes that we have people who aspire to be like us and the more, you know, the good people are out there. Yes. Well, the more people are out there, you know, you, they, it gives, it gives them encouragement. It gives them that, okay, wow, well, he's, he's doing great or she's doing great. Yeah. That's what I want to do. So I, I enjoy that for that, for those reasons. And I think I've learned now any sort of opportunity I do get to, do speak or show how good I am, then I will. I, I um, I used to think it was a bad quality to have to just want to be. I always associate that sort of quality with people who work in the private sector. We just want to be the best and the best and show that you're the best. But I do believe it's a quality that if you have it, and if you obviously if you have the skills to be the best, then you you have to show it.
1: I spoke about you to a friend today. And we were talking about diversity, and I was saying to you, I think I want to quit a particular thing. And you said to me, we don't quit, Tara. Why don't we quit? Why should I not quit? What keeps you going when you think, oh, for Christ's sake, or when you feel like you don't fit or you feel like you don't belong, why do you not quit?
2: Uh, That's uh, that's an interesting question, but uh, if we really think deeply and i came across i came across something i think it was yesterday or day for yesterday those people who we um see as being successful you know the i don't know anyone who's maybe got money power and doing good things one thing that we tend to forget is that they didn't just get there didn't just do something and end up there they probably lost money failed many times got up so each time they failed they probably got up looked for something else and made some progress and probably failed again and obviously there are people that failed and never did make it to be recognized but those that have made it there they didn't get hit just by quitting so I believe if you if you if you really believe in what you do it's 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 too easy to to quit if you've been given that opportunity to do something there are loads of people in this world who who are probably as good as me and you but then they're you know they're not in that position to be able to even demonstrate so the fact that we're we've worked hard to get where we are so far but we're also in a position to do things and do greater things and do better things and wonderful things for people to say yeah Tara you're great or Jimmy, you're great and for people behind us to say yeah that's what I want to be that's just the reason why you can't give up you can't give up. I There's a saying, I think it's a Nigerian saying, it might not be, Even it's in English, it says, you meet someone who's complaining about how ill-fitted their shoes are until you come across someone who's got no feet. You know, so sometimes complaining about an ill-fitting shoe is probably at least one of the worries. So if, if you fail at one thing, The way I do it is if 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 something doesn't work for me, I just go back, analyze, reflect, see where I went wrong. If I want to continue down that line, then I'll I'll go at it again. Probably not with the same approach, but if it's something I believe in, and sometimes, and that's happened a lot of times, an example is obviously serving, serving the Nigerian community. It's serving any community is difficult, hard work, and a lot of my times during my time in office as the first vice chair, I was also head of projects, so I carried out a lot of projects. A lot of times, I didn't get the backing that I needed, or sometimes I got the backing, but it was you know, yeah, we believe in you. You go ahead and do it, and you're thinking, well, where's what team do I get? And they say no team. So a lot of the times, I had to do everything on my own, and you know, thankfully a lot of the things were a success. So you can't just quit. It's um it's it's you know it's not it's not something that should be in our in our vocabulary. No. We we're we're opportuned to be where we are. We've worked hard to be where we are and you know you didn't get to where you are by quitting. So there's still gonna be many bumpy roads ahead. I think the higher the higher we get, the more boisterous we become, the more bumpier the road gets. Uh, I always say, as you get higher up the ladder or whatever we want to call it, you just spend some, a bit more money on a, a stronger seatbelt. You know, it, it's like a, a bumpy ride. If you know it's going to be bumpy, make sure you fasten your seatbelt properly because you're going to expect things to be bumpy. So you're not going to fall off, you're not going to have an accident. That's how I see it.
1: I went to a theme park the other day. You look know, like a harness. Yes,
2: exactly. Yes,
1: that's that's what
2: that's what you invest in as you start. You know, as you get where you know, get get up there. It's never going to be easy. It's never going to be easy.
1: And another thing that you said, and you talked about being practical, offering practical solutions. So we had a really good conversation about diversity, and you gave some really practical examples of what you are doing to help your colleagues to increase their aware. what did you call it, their cultural competency. Love that. Could you share with our listeners what you are doing within your organisation to increase uh, your colleagues' cultural
2: competency? Probably to give some context. So some people might or might not know, in um, 2014, NHS England um, rolled out what we call... Um, the workforce race equality standards. And the whole aim of this was um, to evaluate the experiences of black and minority ethnic staff compared to the rest of the workforce to to see how their experiences in their workplace compared to each other. And over the past probably three years or so, not much, there hasn't been much progress, unfortunately, I would say. Um, Last year in Lewisham, we carried out um, a workforce race equality standards within general practice. So the, the one that NHS England rolled out was mainly for hospitals and big organisations. Um, last year, we did one specifically for um, GP practices or general practice, as we, as we call it. And again, the whole the aim of this was to introduce a concept in general practice with a baseline. So getting, getting some stats, understanding where we were, and decide how we're going to make some improvement on um, this baseline. So the, um, the results of the survey were not surprising. Um, uh, in general practice, as with m- most NHS organisations, there's high level of discrimination, staff thought there was high level of racism, they weren't able to um, get to certain levels within jobs or get to certain career levels. So earlier this year, just before the pandemic, after this survey went to our board it was agreed that we need to set up um task and finish group i hesitated there because i don't like the word task and finish especially with regards to what we're trying to achieve because it means that there's going to be a finish which i don't believe i think there's a group that's going to work on this for a very very long time but anyway we set up a task and finish group and my main role is to try and pull together some of the things are happening nationally so for example i've just developed an action plan and i'm at the moment currently looking for what we call a speak up guardian so a speak up guardian is someone that people can go to if they feel they need to speak to them about something about work something that is confidential or difficult to speak to their line manager about so that's one of the things that i'm doing there's been a lot of to and throwing around that but we're getting there another thing that i'm doing just put together a, nothing new but a zero tolerance document this is mainly for gp practice staff and patients but also there is some things in there how staff can manage discrimination against them from staff not just from patients i'm also liaising with, um, with, with i mean it's just through this work that i've realized there actually is a, a a lot of things out there already. So, we had, there's a BAME network already in Lewisham, which I had never heard of. So, we're now liaising. We just spoke about them, just spoke with them yesterday. So, we're going to pull in a lot of things and um, try and see how we can support GP practice staff. There we are going to be looking at putting on training for staff, not just for um, junior staff, but also for senior staff. So, things like cultural humility. Um, although there's some still some work to be done, because I again not quite sure what cultural humility means. I, I was just about to ask you that. Yes, not quite sure yet. So uh, working on that. But some of the again practical things is we need to really give a great rationale or good rationale as to why, especially senior members of staff need to buy into, for example, this um, action plan. Why is it that junior members of staff of colour are not? able to go beyond a certain level Uh, I think one thing that's important Tara is we're not speaking of not speaking about big organizations so we're not talking about big hospitals GP practices are small businesses so you could have a GP practice that has probably about 11 or 12 staff so it's quite difficult to understand all the nuances that go on so my manager well someone in the practice the manager they probably have to spend all day in the room with the manager and if things are not working out for them it's quite a difficult place to be so those are the things that we're looking at it's still early days um, but I think for me a positive thing has been I've realized there's a lot of things out there not much there's a lot of groups there's a lot of things be resources should I say but nothing much is happening if that makes sense so my job no matter how I do it I'm not sure yet I'm still working on it is to try and use what is there and some of the initiatives that are already coming in and ideas that are coming in to try and shift what is already going on in general practice so Making sure that understanding what racism is, understanding that you can't discriminate against staff in your general practice, and what is going to happen probably in October or November of this year. I'm going to rerun an evaluation, rerun the data. So, again, this data is via a survey to practices and see if there has been any shift. And uh, going back to my initial point, I've been a task and finish group. This is why I'm skeptical about calling, uh, having the finish at the end because I think once that data is rerun, hopefully there'll be some improvement I can probably guarantee it won't be massive these things take time I think we still need to continue and look for other things that we can do so that maybe in another year in you know, in 12 months time we can rerun another survey and make you know just keep on if that makes sense also what what I have been doing over the past two weeks is making sure that anywhere of board level meetings that I attend that is on their agenda thankfully in Lewisham I think most of the senior executive members are already aware of these sort of things so it is actually what we call a hot potato at the moment so just making sure that it's on everybody's radar on the top of people's agenda at the moment so we obviously can get buy-in and get the traction that we need
1: Did your colleagues watch the film you recommended? They
2: did, 13th, not everybody they did, 13th they did and it had great it had great feedback. We had our meeting last Thursday, the 23rd. That's where everybody um, gave uh, feedback and they did watch it. And most people were stunned, as I as I was when I first watched it. But again, I mean, those obviously those who haven't watched it, when they do watch it, they'll see how it, it's, I don't know if it's sad or how things can really be, entwine into our institution without really you know if you don't really dig deep or have the foresight to look into these things you would not have any clue it's it's amazing
1: if you want to increase your understanding of black culture the film 13 i've watched it like five times it's a documentary i think it's like an award-winning documentary it is I just think it's really well done and I learned loads and the reason why I keep going back is you knowing you watch something quite shocking, quite um, just a lot of information but for me um, it's like I need to watch this again. When you were talking you referred to the NHS uh, equality standards so I write that down it's like I'm going to go and look at that, I'm going to go and look at the general practice, uh, the general practice one or primary care one. In that film they talked about Seminal films and particular people. So I'm one of these people where I'm like, it's a bit of a rabbit hole. I want to. Want, who's this person they keep talking about? So that's why I keep going back to watch it to help put it together. But it's a, it's a very powerful, interesting, and it's a. Weir- it's weird to say something you know, like it's really good. I don't know how. Do you know what I mean? It's not like it is good. It but is it's good. Not but it's n-
2: not like a this film was really good. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. good like in that sense,
1: it's just well done
2: it's well done very informative and as you said it is a bit like you know sends you down a sort of different rabbit hole saying okay, what, okay I've heard of that who is that what was that about so it's it's interesting I would recommend it to to anybody which is what I've been doing
1: um, I know you touched on your book but what led you to write it and you know there's books and there's books you know like this is you know it's a meaty read
2: <laughs> well I'm glad I'm glad, you, I, well, I'm glad you find it a meaty read <laughs> You've only done you've only done a couple of chapters.
1: I know. No, but you know when no. people say no. What I say that you know, like people write their books and they're like, I mean, I'm not being rude, but you know, like you, you could knock that, you could do that on holiday.
2: Yeah, uh, I've had um, last night. I've had that's probably the first question nearly everybody asked me. What made me? My sister asked me two days ago, and she's read the book, and I said it's there in the book why why I decided to write it. But no, I um without probably ruining it for people who haven't read the book I when I was younger I was um I don't know what the word would be but I was quite I was a, one of these different childs I used to try things I used to watch movies and when I watch a movie I'll go in real life and say I wonder if that thing they did in a movie would really work so my parents struggled with me quite a lot I was, I was so you were just, difficult. Yes, but I do <laughs> put it down to the fact that I was quite intelligent and they were both obviously working parents. So when I'd finished doing my homework and reading all my books, I just didn't have anything to do and no one was there. So I just used to experiment. So this happened and my parents sent me to Nigeria and I was quite small and um, a lot of good things happened. I mean, I would never turn back the clock if I could, because I would, never, I would never be who I am now if I had not lived in Nigeria. So I did spend some time in Nigeria but when i came back and i um, i was there for probably about 11 years or so when i came back and i um you know, I was with my siblings and I'd say, Oh, this happened to me. Say, so how was an idea. I I'd said, Well, when I was in Nigeria, this happened to me and that happened to me. That's the "Achieve me, because she watched too many movies. That can never happen to anybody. They never believed any story. Well not story, any of my experiences I wanted to share with them. They never believed it. So I got fed up after a while of telling them. So I remember telling my my sister that you want, know forget it. I'm gonna put it in a book and then you guys can read it. So that's where the idea came from. and It was a long, 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 long time ago for about, I shouldn't say because I was show my age, but it was a very, it was a couple of decades ago when that came to me. But then obviously writing a book is one thing and actually getting it done or wanted to write one and getting it done, two different things. And a lot of things have happened to me since, since I had that idea to write the book. So it's more like I waited for those things to happen to me. So they're now all in the book.
1: I would definitely check it out, and I can't wait to finish it, and I will do a little review. Um, I would like, you're going to hate this, I would like to, uh, it's the word, I'd like to affirm you. I know you're really modest, you're really kind, you are uh, an amazing leader, and when you said people will look to, you said to me, would people look to you? I look to you. I'm telling my friends, we don't quit. Chima says we don't quit. I just, you, even in the short time we've spoken, I've messaged you on LinkedIn. You've been generous with your time and reading your book. I am increasing my cultural competency and I look to you and I am learning your lessons and I hope that I can just continue it. And I hope that I can be as modest and as kind and as generous as you.
2: You can. You are. You are. I think you. Are. I do. I do follow you. I'm a lot not. Now. I'm <laughs> not. <laughs> you will be then. If, you, if be. you feel you are not, but I, I suppose at the end of the day, the. Um, endorsement shouldn't come from yourself, so you're probably not the best person to endorse yourself. Somebody else will endorse you and say you are or you're not. That's that's you know that sort of thing. But it's it's resilience. If we we you know we all have it to different degrees, different levels. Um, we all I think. Well, you know what you want to achieve. I know what I want to achieve. And again, going back to what we're talking about, there isn't a reason. Personally, I just feel I've been through so much that now. I don't need anything, this is what I want to do This is how I'm going to do it Yes, I need support from people People higher than me, my my leaders, mentors Or whatever, but I'm going to do it That's how, and I, a lot of the, Again, I was talking to somebody last night you know, the book, my book isn't for money, it's just I want people to read my story. If I could give it away free, which I do actually, I've given quite a, a lot, I've just printed off loads and I've been giving it out when I go to sort of events and things like that until the pandemic hit. But I just want people to read how they can be in life, especially younger people, because this is a time where a lot of our youngsters are sometimes haven't got the right people around them or probably are losing their way, even if they have the right people around them. Young people just tend to be those kind of people who can easily lose their way. And sometimes what we don't realise is when good information is coming from an outsider, so to say, so maybe not from the parents or an uncle, sometimes that young person is more like to say, hmm, I get that, because that's just how young people are. You know, I know we're all young at one stage, but young people are rebellious and they understand things differently to the way we do. So I just want us all, you know, resilient leaders as we are to make sure we're championing what we want to champion. It's important. And probably in the next 20, 30, 40 years, when you look back, you'll smile and say, yeah, I'm glad I never gave up. That's that's important.
1: If people want to find out more, where can people buy your book, you've got a website, where can people find out more about you?
2: So there's information about me on my LinkedIn page, the book is available on Amazon, so you just need to put in um, the name of the book, which is "A Warrior's Journey." Um, it's also available on my uh, website, which is Chima Olugu. That's C-H-I-M-A dot com. Um, I think those are the most, probably the most important places where you can get the book from.
1: We will leave it in the details of this podcast. Thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Tara. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and if you like what you hear it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you really like it it would be great if you left us an iTunes five-star rating and review and I will see you in the next episode.